Matthew 25 and 40. Communion service today following the worship hour, uh, as is our tradition, 10-minute break, and then when you hear the music, no evening service. Pastor's dinner is this Friday, December the 7th at 6 o'clock, Swartz Creek Church. It's a catered meal. Sign up today on the helps board. That's the one right out here. That's not just for pastors. It's the pastors promoting. Pastors promoting, yes. <laughs> it's for everybody. Join us in caroling tonight with the residents at Devonshire in Lapeer, 7 p.m. All are welcome. Uh, also, pass out ornaments that the children made to the residents. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Uh, thank you for Jared filling uh, the pulpit last week. And uh, you'll see there that the days of praise booklets and acts and facts are here for uh, December. I don't have one with me, but it's got a beautiful picture of Grand Canyon on it. Anything else I've omitted today, forgotten? We all just supposed to meet at Devonshire or gonna Okay. Google it. Yeah, you want to tell me that you're coming and we'll know to wait for you. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Are we gonna have kind of some kind of songbook or all right. Scripture for meditation this morning then is found in First Thessalonians chapter five, read one through twelve.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Dale, can I ask you this morning? morning. Will you take your red hymnal this morning, the red Trinity hymnal, and turn to 324, 324 in the red hymnal. week I had someone come to me after service and say I I want this hymn and I just told someone no a minute ago but he's not here this morning so does someone else have a, a favorite hymn uh, Ken 521 in the brown, 521 in the brown. and we have a, a reason for this 
this morning. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. One of my favorites. It's 521. Scripture reading this morning is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, and we'll be reading 31 through 46. Please stand with us. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning, page 1542 in the Pew Bible. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or need clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God add his blessing on this holy scripture.
please to join the choir in standing and take your red hymnal again and turn to number 334. 334 in the red hymnal. Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 25. As we move along in our study of joyful souls, we consider the joy of preparation as it relates to us being prepared for the return of the Lord so as not to be taken by surprise. Surprise for the world, yes, but not surprise for the believers who study and believe the teachings of Jesus. Some people like surprises. I, for one, do not like surprises. 
I like knowing what is coming. I know what to expect. So I'm ready for any kind of contingency. And I'm not talking about surprise parties and so on. I'm talking about surprises that effectively alter life. Throw people into a spin that they never contemplated. And I suppose a lot of this has to do with the fact that most of us are creatures of habit. We like tried and true. Not innovative, not new. (laughs) Many a wife has said, I'm throwing that shirt away. And he says, but that's my favorite shirt. I bought you a new one. I don't like the new one. I like my old one. That's what we do. Tried and true habit. We like drawing from our experience. It enables us to work our way through difficulties based on past trials. Innovative, new, means what? Could happen. (laughs) Including things which might not be very pleasant or are very disconcerting because we do not know what to expect. Well, let me tell you that Jesus' second coming will have this negative effect on people. Whoa, what's this? What's happening? It is surprise, but surprise in the sense of fear and apprehension. Luke 2, or rather Luke 21, verse 26 and 27, Jesus states it this way, Men will faint from terror apprehension of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken, and at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's new, brethren, and that's frightening. And in light of these truths, we consider two charges. Number one, the parable of the ten virgins. Be watchful, be alert, be vigilant. And number two, there are no second chances for repentance and reformation or revitalization of faith when Christ comes. It's the end. As in the world that we know. Yeah, a new heaven, new earth. But it's the end of all of our opportunities. Now, in today's study, we want to turn our attention to the subject of judgment, which is, it's appointed unto men to die once, okay, but afterwards, the scripture says, the judgment. So, death isn't the end. It's the beginning of the end, but it's not the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and you speak so truthfully about everything that's coming. We want to know the future? Well, maybe we don't want to know about this future if we're not safe in Christ, if the blood of Jesus 
has not forgiven us and cleansed us and made us whole, then thinking about your coming is not very pleasant. But it is a reality that we need to face. And if we face it and accept Christ, what he has declared himself to be, if you will grant us faith and repentance, it will be for our good. We will not be surprised in the terror sense like the world. We pray that you'll get glory from our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the subject of judgment this morning. And the first point in your bulletin outline is that the day of God's, it is the day of God's self-vindication. I guess I didn't have a bulletin insert, so if you might just want to write that down. The day of God's self-vindication. Our text, Matthew 25, describes the coming of Christ in terms of a king, so named, verse 40, summoning the subjects of his kingdom to give an account of themselves concerning their actions. Now this king is none other than the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, verse 31. Coming with all of his angels, it says, being seated on his heavenly throne, from which he summons all the nations, verse 32, to undergo the scrutiny of his examination and evaluation, from which there is no escape and whose decision is final. Before we read of what decisions the king makes, we learn in short order that among all those that are corralled before Jesus' throne, there are but two categories of people. That's it. Two categories. Look at verse 33. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Sheep, goats. This is the only distinction Jesus gives. Nothing is said of race, black, white, oriental. Nothing is said of ethnicity, Jewish, German, Italian, Anglo-Saxon. None of that. Nothing is said of education, a philosopher, an educator, sophists, those that study wisdom, ignorant, untaught. That's not mentioned. Nothing is said of sex, male, female. Nothing is said of economic status, rich, poor, middle class, millionaire. Nothing, 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 nothing said about any of those things. The only distinction given is that of goats and sheep. Now that really simplifies things for us, doesn't it? Well, there must be something Jesus is conveying through the uses of these two designations. And surely he is not talking about those woolly or agile critters that are part of every shepherd's livestock. No, these animal labels represent, verse 32, all the nations that will be gathered before him, or the next phrase, he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd 
separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 32. Ah, so here we learn that Jesus is using these two animals in a symbolic way to describe two kinds of people. And the description he portrays, as noted earlier, has nothing to do with race or ethnicity or education or economic status and so on. Instead, it has to do with an assessment of the spiritual condition of the people who fall into these two categories, sheep and goats. Well, I wanted to learn something about the reason behind why a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. So I did an internet search on an agricultural site, and this is what I discovered. Sheep feed on the fine grasses of the range, gobbling up every last blade. By the way, that's why the cattlemen of our own country hated and fought against the sheep herders that were imported from from Europe when they came to our country because the sheep ate the grass right down to the nubbins and didn't leave anything for the cattle. Well, they weren't interested in sheep. They were cattle barons. So there was we had wars in the, in this country in the early days between the cattle barons and the sheep herders over the, this very issue. The sheep eat the grass down to the nubbins. Well, goats, in contrast, will eat weeds, briars, most any trash vegetation that you can think of. The wool of sheep is more refined than that of goats, probably because of the diet. The famous merino wool, which you will find in the better uh, department stores, is sheep wool. It's the finest and it's the smoothest. Character-wise, sheep are generally mild-mannered critters, rather docile, non-aggressive. Goats, however, uh, (laughs) they use their horns to butt you and to butt one another in order to gain predominance. Now, I was raised on a gentleman farm. I say a gentleman farm. We had just selective amount of farm animals. We had five goats, no sheep. Five goats, one cow, few chickens, two pigs. That was our gentleman farm. Let me tell you, the goats would chase us kids and try to butt us with their butt, with their uh, head, with just just for daring to walk by them. And we kids knew this, so we would we would walk very gingerly when we were going by the goats. We wouldn't look at them in the eye, and we would kind of just look out of the corner of our eye. And sure enough, we'd get about here, and the goats' head would be about there, and they would turn on us. And then we took off like a bolt, <laughs> see if we could outrun the goats. It didn't work. The goats could outrun us, but that's what they did. Sheep produce a mild-tasting cheese similar to mozzarella. It's called Pecorino Romano, or Brie. 
Goats produce a stronger tasting cheese. It's called feta cheese. Your feta cheese in your grocery market is goat cheese, goat made from goat milk. Finally, goats are belligerent, stubborn, defiant, unpredictable, whereas sheep are docile, amiable, obedient, compliant, and predictable. It's like worlds apart, sheep and goats. Now, how this evidences itself in people whom Jesus labels as sheep and goats is indicated in our text. Look at the sheep, verse 35 and following. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. That sounds like a sheep. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. That's sheep, sheep, sheep. And when the sheep could not recollect doing any of these things for Christ, they're unassuming, his answer was, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Verse 40. Do we not see that what comes across here is the compassionate caring, merciful kindness that is characteristic of the shepherd king himself. It is Jesus' earthly ministry to the people of his day lived out in believers to the people of their day. Jesus put it this way in another text. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Yeah, they do. John 10, verse 27. And that is the compliant nature of the sheep that we noted earlier. God's true people do not have to have their arm twisted behind their back to get them to do what the grace and the goodness of God would want them to do. Now, in contrast to this, this wonderful conduct of the sheep. The king has a different evaluation of the goats in this narrative, verse 42 and following. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. And so on and so on down through each point used to analyze the sheep. But what a different thing with regard to the goats. The goat people, like the goat critters, are mean-spirited, surly, selfish, giving nothing to satiate the hunger and thirst of the needy, not even a piece of bread or a glass of water. And observe that the goats, like the sheep, uh, they just couldn't figure out when all this might have happened. <laughs> they could not remember spurning the Lord in that way or being so mean-spirited to him. His answer, verse 45, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. 
The fate of both groups was confirmed and sealed by how they responded to Christ. Now get it. How they responded to Christ was evident in how they treated the believers in Christ. Oh. Oh. The sheep displayed the character of Jesus in their dealings with one another. The goats displayed the meanness, anger, selfishness, and indifference of people who have no time for God. So they don't have any time for God's people. Ezekiel 36 has something to contribute here as well. The prophet explains that Israel got the surrounding pagan nations and why he tells us this is what the sovereign lord says in my burning zeal i have broke spoken against the rest of the nations and against edom for with glee and with malice in their hearts they made my land their own possession so that they might plunder its pasture land Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says. I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will also suffer scorn. But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I am concerned for you. I will look upon you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. The towns will be inhabited, and the ruins will be rebuilt. Ezekiel 36, verse 5 and following. These nations, the enemies of Israel then, are equivalent to the goats in our text. The nations called to give an account before Christ at his coming. What they did to Israel then has been perpetrated on Christians prior to Jesus' return. Ezekiel reports, No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations. No longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples or cause your nation to fall, declares the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 15. And in verse 38 and following, They will say, this land was laid waste and has become the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. I will do it. 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and to this for them I will do. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during their appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 33 and following. In reading a text like this, it would be very easy to assume that the reason God's favor fell upon Israel, the sheep, was because they were such wonderful people, obedient to his word, righteous in behavior, eager to do his will, Well, you can dream all you want. That's not what the context says. Ezekiel 36 does not endorse such an inflated view of Israel, God's people. Instead, here's what it says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am doing these things, but for the sake of My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Now that's a different reason altogether. Did I read that right? Israel profaned God's name among the nations. How so? Verse 17. Son of man... When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Okay, so I asked the question, what was their conduct? What were their actions? Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. May I say from the Exodus on, Israel had a history of ambiguity in regard to worship. Sometimes they worshiped God aright. Other times they worshiped idols. Remember the golden calf story? For which God would judge them because of their apostasy. And that brings a certain perspective to our text, dealing with the final judgment of all peoples. The activities of the sheep in our text, which are good, kind, righteous, and true, must not be misconstrued to mean that the sheep were all these things in and of themselves. No, no. (laughs) Jesus said to the goats that neglected the common decencies afforded his people who were hungry, thirsty, naked, and in need, that this evil behavior was leveled against him. Him. It is Jesus, not us, who becomes the reason for the judgment. He judges for his own name's sake because we 
Sad to say, like Israel of old, have acted in sinful ways that have profaned his name among the nations. But since we bear his name and by grace his righteousness, Jesus' judgment falls on all who abuse his people. Because when they abuse us, they abuse him. We are not righteous in ourselves. But as God said through Ezekiel about Israel, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds. And you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 26 and following. Brethren, as Jonah the prophet succinctly put it, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And may I say, because of For all the chatter in our day about sinners having to believe and repent to be saved, and they do, we should know that no such faith and repentance will ever occur unless and until the Lord gives us a new heart and a new spirit within to love and obey God. The psalmist enjoins us, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yeah. Into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Psalm 100, verses 3 and following. God is involved in self-vindication. The day of judgment is a day coming in which Jesus will vindicate himself. He says, you did it to me. And they're saying, oh, well, well, when? We don't, we don't. You did it to me. Zechariah words it this way. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. Whoever touches you. Touches the apple of my eye. Zechariah 2 verse 8. We don't deserve to be the apple of God's eye. But we are. By his grace we are. For his glory we are. 
So, judgment is first for God's self-vindication. Secondly, the day of judgment is the day of every believer's vindication. Not only does Jesus vindicate himself in the day of his coming, but he vindicates all who have believed in him. True, as with Israel of old, God acts for his own sake, but there's a wonderful fallout for all who bear his name. Repeatedly, in the Ezekiel 36 text, we read that when God acted in judgment on the nations who had devastated Israel's towns and villages and livestock and crops and so on, he did so for his own name's sake. That's all very true. But it is also true that in a secondary but a very real sense, Israel was vindicated as well. God refers to the land itself saying, But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people. Israel. For they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you. I will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. The towns will be inhabited, the ruins will be rebuilt. I will increase the number of men and animals upon you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you, as in the past, and will make you prosper more than before. And then you will know that I. And the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 8 and following. It's like God's talking to the land. And he's personified the land. And he says all the things he's going to do on the land for the sake of his people. He acts on his own behalf. That's very true. But the benefits accrue to his people as he rights the wrongs done primarily. He says to himself. Now look again at our text. Matthew 25 verse 44 and following. They, referring to the goats, the unbelievers, the persecutors, they also will answer, Lord, when did we? I, I, I can't quite connect the dots here when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison when did we see you in all those conditions and did not help you we're having trouble on this one and he will reply, I'm reading scripture, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, and then the these are his brothers, verse 40, you did not do it for me. Matthew 25, verse 44. And then the next verse, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. One of the places in the Bible where the punishment is described as eternal as well as the life as being described as eternal. 
It's a fact that the world cannot get its hands on God directly, so it does the next worst thing. They come after the people who bear God's name. Peter put it this way, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 5. None of this escapes God's notice or his vindication. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, the church. And here's what he says. Among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance in faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. All this is evident that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give you relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. And be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. Because you believed our testimony to you. And with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling. And that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours. And every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and following. When God vindicates himself at his coming, there is the residual effect that persecuted, mocked, and ridiculed believers will be vindicated as well. Okay, then is there any joy in the coming judgment? Sounds pretty austere, doesn't it? Well, there is joy in judgment. 
Firstly, the joy that God's name is finally revered. I'm looking forward to that day. The name of God will finally be revered. One of the things that smacks on the ears of every believer is when people of the world use God's name to ridicule, blaspheme, curse, condemn him or others created in his image. I want to say if it bangs on our ears, it makes, if it makes us pause and kind of reflect, what must it be on God's ears when his name is used in these irreverent, godless, profane ways? I can tell you that it is not a minor sin. Not a minor sin. And I know this to be the case because we have God's word on it because guess what of the ten commandments commandment number three says you shall not I'm reading scripture you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name Exodus 20 verse 7 we don't think of this very often People say, oh God. They say that all the time. Or they say, God damn so and so. Leviticus 19.12 says, Do not swear falsely by my name. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Leviticus 19 verse 12. I wonder how many people have been guilty of this in our court systems when they lay their hand on the Bible and are asked, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? And they answer, I do. And then they proceed to perjure themselves by lying on the stand. The greater sin is that they have sworn falsely using God's name to give credibility to their statements. Oh, as God is my witness, watch out. (laughs) He is your witness. We have this terrible account in Leviticus 24, the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made known to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp, and all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or native-born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. Leviticus 24, verse 11 and following. Oh, we have something similar in the New Testament. 
at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every will, tongue will confess that he is Lord to the praise and glory of who he is. The name that is above every name. It's a hallowed name. We're to respect it, not use it for curse words or expletives. So there's going to be the joy in the final judgment of the fact that God's name will be finally revered. I'm looking forward to that. You can't go anywhere today without hearing people use God's name as a curse word. Secondly, there'll be the joy that the wicked will finally and forever be judged. One of the things that has disturbed believers is the fact that some of the Psalms, some of the Psalms in our Bible, call down, pray down, God's wrath upon the wicked. They're called imprecatory Psalms. Psalm 59 is an example. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight, O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to these wicked traitors. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. They spew out swords from their lips and they say, oh, who can hear us? But you, O Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff. At all those nations, O oh, my strength, I watch for you. You, O oh God, are my fortress, my loving God. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. And then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Psalm 59, verses 1 and 5. Do you see David's motive? While he enumerates the evils that have been done towards him, his goal is that these wicked people will acknowledge that God rules over Jacob. And that being the case, when they attack believers, they attack his God. So God is obligated to rise to his defense. 
And that will mean the crushing of the wicked. Now, I don't know if we've always thought of ourselves as being that precious to God and that connected, but we are. In Psalm 82, it's all a matter of justice. It's a matter of righteousness. The psalmist says, how long will you defend the unjust? Show partiality to the wicked. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. Psalm 82, verse 2 and 5. We are to rejoice when justice and righteousness prevail and sin and wickedness are overthrown. Eliphaz, one of the friends of Job, Describes the wicked who said to God, Leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was He who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed, and fire devours their wealth. Job 22, verse 17 and following. Or again, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged. When they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked, then men will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Psalm 58, verse 9 and following. Uh, the destruction of Babylon, which stands for the corrupt world. We're told in the Revelation, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Revelation 18, verse 25. Justice and righteousness are the Lord's vestures, his clothing. John writes, I saw heaven... Standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He is dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, verse 11 and 12. What this tells me and what it should tell you is that justice is coming. Justice is coming. And in this we rejoice. But I ask in closing, do you want justice in your case or do you want mercy? I've heard unbelievers make this stupid statement. And it goes something like this. When I stand before the throne of God, the only thing that I'm asking for is justice. That's because in their self-righteousness, they think there's no sin on their ledger that would cause God to consign them to hell. So they think, I'm in a good way. I am not like other sinners, you know. I didn't murder anybody. I have not committed adultery. I haven't raped anyone. I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't, I haven't, I. I'm a good guy. So I'm ready to stand before God's judgment seat and let justice prevail. Well, it will prevail. But they haven't a clue of the blackness of their own heart. James says... They are like people who look into the mirror of God's word and then, these are his words, immediately they walk away and they forget what they saw. Well, what did they see in the mirror of God's word? They saw their great need. They saw the fact of them being a sinner by birth and by practice. They saw that they needed a Savior, desperately needed a Savior that was beyond their abilities. They saw that, they saw that, they saw that, and they immediately walked away and forgot what they saw. And they thought, you know, I look pretty good. I'm happy if God just treats me just. I don't want justice in the day of judgment. I want mercy. David, the great psalm writer,
wrote these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Psalm 51. David is saying, Try as I might. Hard as I work, I can't get away from my sin. And what is more, nothing I do eradicates what I've done. So, Lord, I'm not looking for justice. I'm looking for mercy. And I believe that I have come to the right place to find that. Solomon David's son put it this way. He who conceals his sin, he who conceals his sin, does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. That's what you need. That's what I need as we stand in the thought of God's coming judgment. We need mercy. And we receive that by confessing and renouncing our sin and claiming Christ, praying Christ's mercy upon us. If you don't have his blood covering your sins, it's going to be your blood. And it's going to be a long time. Say, well, how long is a long time? How about for all eternity? Well, what's eternity? Eternity is time plus time Plus time, plus time, plus time that knows no end. It's time forever and ever. Wow. You better hope you find mercy. And you can find it in Christ. And in him. Alone. Our Lord, we thank you that you loved your people, people so much that you came and sacrificed yourself on a cross. I think the cross is like that mirror that James talks about. He looks himself in the mirror, and what does he see there? He sees what it cost God to redeem him. He sees the cross and the need for the blood of Jesus being spilled, the death of Christ. And he walks away from that mirror and he, and he says, I don't want to ever forget what it cost. And I always want to be thankful. I want to be receptive 
If God says it costs that to redeem me, then it costs that to redeem me. I believe it and I trust in Christ. Lord, if there's any here today that doesn't know Christ, grant them that faith and repentance. Bring them to the cross, not only to look at it and say, oh, what a bloody scene, but to see that it's the blood of Christ, the necessary shedding of his blood, in order to spare us the shedding of our blood. And our puny blood has no great merit, so it will take all of eternity to pay for our sins. But the blood of Christ is so precious. Why is it so precious? Because he was sinless, never once sinning, no blemish. Wow, what a great jewel that was paid to cover our sin. The precious blood of Christ. We're going to celebrate that in the next hour. But help us to see it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 501 in the hymnal. We're going to sing this and then take like a 10-minute break, regather for our Lord, the Lord's table. No evening service tonight, 501. However, we are going to be meeting at uh, the home, the rest home, Devonshire. Y'all know where Devonshire is? It's real easy. You just get on Genesee and go out past, you know, head west. And uh, as soon as you cross Millville Road, which would take you to uh, the high school, what used to be the high school, right between there and the, the doctor's offices that are down the street a ways, on the right there's a road called Devonshire It's called Devonshire. <laughs> the, the road is called Devonshire. Turn there. You go a block, and, de- and the building is right there on your left. There's apartments. We're not going to that. But there's, there's the home, the rest home. People are in there. By the way, Diane's uh, mother is there at Devonshire. Uh, she's in the memory uh, division, people with dementia and stuff like that. So that's at 7 o'clock. All right. Our closing hymn is 501. Let's stand together as we sing. Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Heart.
to take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music for the Lord's table. Also on the helps board right outside the door here is a sign-up sheet for the Christmas dinner at Swartz Creek. Now it says pastor's dinner on there, but it's not for pastors. It's our annual dinner that we hold for all the churches. There's a cost. It's written on the board out there. And it'll be a great night. It's at Swartz Creek. It's just, you know, 45 minutes away and you're there. You'll hear a good speaker, get a great meal, and you'll get to meet people from our sister churches. It's really a nice evening. So I hope you will sign up for that and support it. And we're dismissed now for 10 minutes. Thank <clears throat> you.